Mark 11, 1 through 25. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Betharge and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they said what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before them and those following were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in a distance a fig tree in the leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because of all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening they had come, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus answered, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And wherever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. All right, well, uh, you all know some actions in life, some behaviors, uh, carry more, they speak louder than words, right? They carry more meaning than words can actually communicate. So, as an example... Um, it is the opening weekend of college football, right? I hope everybody's teams did well. I know we got a Notre Dame win. Way to go. Sorry, Michigan. Um, all that. But uh, Mizzou, you know, came out on top as well against the Cupcake. So we're at least uh, off, to the, off to a good start game one. But imagine this scenario. This year, in, sometime during the college football season, a running back makes an incredible play, ends in the end zone, and does this. Okay. What has he just communicated louder than words could ever speak? If The Heisman. Yeah, if you do the Heisman pose after you score a touchdown, you are saying something. You are embodying some action that speaks far louder than if you were to stand up at the press conference and say, I happen to be the greatest college football player of the year. Okay, You're, you're saying something with your actions that actually speak louder than words. Okay, or imagine a young man uh, who's in love 
with his girlfriend and he takes her out to a nice dinner and he gets down on one knee and he holds up a box right in front of her, okay? Now, he could say something next. He probably should say something next, but he, he sort of doesn't have to, right? That action, embodying that pose in front of your beloved speaks more than words can communicate, okay? That, the action is the proposal, Some behaviors are infused with so much meaning, they actually communicate stronger than words. It's important, here's another example, it's important to tell our friends, to communicate to them, verbally say out loud that we love them and that we're there for them and we care for them. But you know what really communicates? You know what really counts? Is when your friends drop everything that they're doing because you are in the hospital or you're grieving or you're overwhelmed, and they show up, and they don't have to say anything. They just have to be there. They just have to be present. And that action, that behavior, speaks louder in some ways than any words could ever communicate. Mark 11, our passage this morning, is a really important chapter in the book of Mark. We've been going through a sermon series on uh, the gospel of Mark, tracking Jesus' ministry, tracking his life, his identity, his mission. And this Uh, Chapter 11 is the beginning of Jesus' final week. Within the week of him arriving in Jerusalem on this donkey, he's going to gather his disciples together for a final meal on Thursday, a Passover meal. He's going to institute the Lord's Supper. Uh, Late that night, he'll be arrested. He'll be abandoned by all of his followers. By early Friday morning, he'll be condemned to die by the Roman government. And Friday, he'll be crucified. And by that evening, He'll be buried. He'll be, all day Saturday, he'll be lying silent and dead in a tomb. And then Sunday morning, his followers will arrive at that tomb and find it. And slowly, over the next coming days and weeks, Jesus will begin to reveal himself to people, starting with Mary and then John and then his disciples. He's going to introduce something brand new into the world that has never existed before, that will change the course of human history. He's going to offer the gift of resurrection life to all those who follow him, who put their faith in him. All that happens in this next week. And so our chapter today is Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, and it sort of it kicks off all of this crucial and important activity, activity, and it's sort of an announcement, okay? This chapter is sort of like a declaration. Jesus is finally going public, so to speak. Now, there's this interesting thing in the book of Mark that we've seen over and over again. We haven't spent a lot of time looking at it yet, but this, there's this strange habit of Jesus that... As he extends his ministry, the gifts of the gospel, the gifts of the kingdom, he's constantly telling people to be quiet about it. He's constantly telling people to keep a lid on all the activity that he's been doing in his ministry. So in Mark 1, right out of the gates, Jesus casts out a demon and he says to the demon that he would not permit the demon to speak because that demon knew him. Okay. Then in Mark 5, after healing Jairus' daughter, we read, he strictly charged them that no one should know about this. In Mark 7, he charged them to tell no one after he healed a deaf man. So why? I mean, Jesus showed up, and he does some incredible stuff, right? Like unheard of stuff in the history of humanity. Why is he trying to keep people quiet about it? Why the silence? Why the secrecy? Jesus knew that his mission and his identity 
would not make any sense to anybody until the end of his life, until this week that he's beginning here in Mark 11. Jesus knew that the interpretive key, so to speak, the thing that's going to help us make sense of everything else that he's already done is about why he came to earth and what he's really doing and what he's offering those who put their faith in him only makes sense after this final week. So what he does is he tries to keep people from spreading a message about him that doesn't include the most important piece that comes at the end. But now that he's arrived in Jerusalem for his final week, um, he goes public, okay? He, he spreads the word far and wide about his mission, his identity, and this chapter is his declaration. It's his announcement. It's his inaugural address, all right? And, um, but here's the thing that's so fascinating about Jesus. Instead of a stump, a stump speech, instead of you know, standing up and being kind of presidential and telling people what his policy initiatives are going to be in his speech, or instead of a well-crafted kind of rollout of his campaign themes in a, in a press release, what Jesus does to communicate his mission and his identity and his ministry is he um, does some actions. He, he lives into some behaviors that speak even louder than words, all right? So in this passage we just read, Jesus did some crazy stuff. Three actions, performances, that Jesus lives out in this chapter that I want us to notice. He rides a donkey, he curses a tree, and then he goes into the the temple on the busiest day of the year and just starts flipping tables, okay? Jesus just kind of goes crazy, drives people out. On the surface, this is a wild collection of, of behavior. Uh, on the one hand, he serenely and calmly rides into town on a humble donkey. You know, this is Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, not 12 hours later, he's, he's calling curses down from heaven on a tree because it doesn't produce the sort of fruit he wants. Like, the tree's just chilling, right? I mean, the tree hasn't done anything. It's just there. And all of a sudden, Jesus is calling down the wrath of God on this poor tree. And then we see him sort of turn a corner that we haven't really seen from Jesus yet, and he just goes off in the temple, okay? I mean, he, he binds a whip together, flips some tables, drives out the money changers. So has Jesus finally cracked, right? I mean, this, like, son of God, Messiah stuff, there's got to be a lot of pressure on that, in that role. Has he finally lost it, or what in the world is going on? What I want us to see this morning is these three behaviors, these performances communicate something very surprising about Jesus. Okay, his identity, his mission is totally unique in the history of the world. But more than that, they also communicate something very necessary for us. These, these actions, these embodiments of behavior that communicate deeper than words, they connect to our lives today and they actually bring great hope and great purpose to us. So that is where we're heading. We're going to look at these three behaviors and see how they may apply to us. Before we do that, let's pray one more time for God's guidance as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, your word is a gift, and we ask that as we open it now and, and, and consider these, frankly, strange behaviors from Jesus, that you would give us eyes to see who he is, what he has done on our behalf, and, and how it might apply to our lives. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, Jesus rides a donkey into town, verses 1 through 11. Up until this moment in his ministry, uh, unless he was in a boat, Jesus had walked everywhere. Uh, He now asks his disciples to go into town ahead of him, him, 
and pull around his divinely appointed ride, okay, a donkey, a colt. And in this culture, a donkey was a stately animal, okay, it wasn't embarrassing to ride in a town on a donkey. In fact, it was a kingly animal. But kings didn't ride donkeys into battle, okay? This isn't a war horse. This is not a claim to sort of dominance and power and a revolutionary arrival of a warrior. This is not a takeover of a city that his people probably wanted him to do because they'd been oppressed by foreign powers for so long. Uh, This is not exactly what the Jewish people were hoping for. By sitting on a donkey, Jesus was certainly announcing himself as a king, but a different kind of king than this world has known. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah wrote this, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. See, when Jesus sits on that colt and rides in a town, he is embodying a prophecy about who he is. And he's saying, righteousness and salvation are from God, and I am that kind of king. But humility and neediness, well, those things are very human. And I'm that kind of king as well. You see, by ending his walk at the gates of the city and sitting on the back of this donkey, Jesus is saying without words, again, actions that speak louder than words, I am the king that Zechariah told you about. I am the God-man king, and there hasn't been one like me in the history of the world, and there won't be. Again, I'm the one in whom righteousness and salvation can be found, and I'm also the humble one, the one who Paul will say made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is a king, and kings have many rights. Okay, We don't have kings in America, but we know about kings, right? Kings can do whatever they want. They're the sovereign ones. They they decide what goes. And King, and G, King Jesus, he has the right to the throne of heaven itself. He is the sovereign ruler of the whole world. He has the rights to everything that is ever going to happen here with us. He has the right, frankly, to remain uninvolved in the mess that we have made of our world. He has the right to bring justice to a rebellious people. He has the right to comfort and safety and riches of heaven. He has the right to be worshipped and adored and honored. He has the right of glory. But many kings have had those kinds of rights. Not Granted, not to the extent that Jesus has them, okay? He's like the king of kings. But many kings have these sorts of rights, the, the sovereignty to create the laws. They have the power to rule over and decide what happens in their land. Their word is the law. That kind of kingly power is impressive, but for Jesus it's not totally unique What's totally unique, what makes Jesus' claim to be our king totally unique is that as he rides into Jerusalem on this particular day, he had all of those rights at his disposal, but instead of using them, he laid them down on our behalf. In other words, Jesus rides in on the donkey and not on the war horse. It It would probably be good at some point there's these little lines sometimes in the Bible that just catch you. You know, it'd probably be, probably be good at some point for all of us to take five minutes and just consider that simple line in verse 3, the Lord has need. 
the Lord had a, ha, has need of this cult, okay? The Lord has need. The Lord, the sovereign king of everything. I mean, the one who invented quantum mechanics, okay, and understands the physics that drives our entire universe. He, he invented human emotion and neurology. He crafted our world and our valley with his bare hands. Everything in it and everything of our world belongs to him and is for him. That Lord has need. In this case, he needs to borrow someone else's donkey because he has basically no human possessions. But he also has put himself in a place of need. He has humbled himself for our sake, so much so that he experienced suffering and loneliness and pain and death. The Lord has need. God became man. The king with all the rights laid down those rights for you and I. He could have simply told us those things. Instead, he embodied those things in this action to speak in a way that's even louder than words. In these actions, this is telling us he is the only one who can offer us the answer to our deepest life's problem. He can save us. This is what he's saying by riding in on a donkey. Okay, all of this in one little action. He, God, Jesus can save us because he's God. He's perfect, he's holy, he's just, he's loving. He is the one we need to be connected to to have life. He can save us because he's God. But he can save us because he became like us. He became humble enough to take on the form of a human and be exposed to all of the same things that we're exposed to in this broken world. He left the safety of heaven and he took on the death we deserve, the sin we deserve, and offered us his righteousness. No other king makes that claim. No other king takes the place of his rebellious citizens. That's the story of the gospel, and it's so crazy. It's so hard to like get in our minds and our hearts that Jesus waited until the final week of his life to go public so that everything he did would make sense in light of this. It only makes sense in the shadow of the cross. Okay, these are the central facts Jesus is announcing in his ride into Jerusalem. And if riding in on a donkey was Jesus' declaration as king, as a whole new kind of king, then these next two performances, these next two activities, are sort of his uh, first major speech about his policy initiatives, okay? If he is declaring himself to be the king, these next two actions, flipping tables and cursing trees, uh, communicate what he wants to do as king, all right? Now, no one can say Jesus is boring. You can say a lot about Jesus, but you can never say he is boring. He is constantly surprising us, and he is constantly requiring us to go back and sort of re-examine what he's about, okay? He's more like fine wine than vitamins. Vitamins, you just like get it in you, and it's direct access, you know, and it gives you the nutrients you need. Fine wine is meant to be uh, is meant to be enjoyed, is meant to be returned to, is meant to be contemplated. We're not just getting this content in us. We're here to like receive this sort of delicious, fascinating, complex gift. And if I can say it, the kind of wine that Jesus is offering us here in this passage is like some funky and complex wine, okay? I hope I can say that about Jesus. I'm told by trustworthy authorities that fig trees have two kinds of fruit. I'm not a horticulturalist. I don't know these kinds of things, but professionals tell me. There are two kinds of fruits on a fig tree in the ancient Near East, all right? In the spring, they have leaves and a small fruit called a pegum, 
and then later in the summer, the full fig ripens. And Mark tells us here that it's not the season for figs, but Jesus was still expecting to find something on the tree. So he must have been looking for that early sign of fruit called the pegum that should normally bloom with the leaves. But instead, when he passes this poor little tree, he didn't find anything. Okay, He found leaves, but no fruit. The plant, in other words, looked healthy from far away. There were some signs of life. There was some green stuff there. And as he approached, it looked like it might be a healthy, vibrant tree. But upon closer inspection, there wasn't fruit that indicated a, a deep health. There was something seriously wrong. This plant was never going to produce the kind of fruit it was meant to produce. So Jesus names that truth, and he curses it, and he said, may you wither and never produce fruit again. But of course, this isn't just about the fig tree, is it? The diagnosis that Jesus makes of the plant here is the same diagnosis that Jesus is making of the religious activity as he enters Jerusalem and the temple that week. Things appeared quite healthy from afar. There's a lot of activity going on in the temple that week. It was Passover week. It was the most important week in the Jewish calendar. And the place was jam-packed. Faithful Jews had traveled for days to give their yearly sacrifice at the temple. Oftentimes, again, I'm told by experts who know things, that uh, they wouldn't travel with their cattle the whole way, but instead they would sort of like travel all the way to Jerusalem and then buy cattle for the sacrifices there. And so that's what's going on outside of the temple. It's like this stock exchange, okay? It's like, I mean, it's basically like you you take the New York Times... Times the New York Stock Exchange, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and the total chaos and yelling and shouting and trading and bidding that's going on there, and then you add hundreds of thousands of cattle, okay? And that's what's going on in the temple floor. People are buying and selling sheep, goats, bulls, all for the religious sacrifices that they need to make over the course of this week during the Passover. And... Um, So it's total chaos. And Jesus comes in and systematically dismantles what is going on. Okay, in other gospels, we, we, Mark doesn't mention it, but other gospels tell us that he kind of steps over the side and starts to weave a whip together, right, before he takes these guys to task. And you just kind of have this, I do anyway, this image of God or of Jesus uh, on the side, weave, calmly weaving his whip together, you know, like nudging his disciples, like, Check this out. I'm about to open up a can on these guys. Okay, right? So, and then he does. And then he goes in and he flips tables and he drives out the money changers with his whip. He throws chairs. He, he, money is flying all over the place. Jesus is dismantling this system that looks healthy from afar, that looks like religious activity, but like that tree, doesn't have the deep health of spiritual life. It isn't connected to anything that's going to produce real fruit. It's not the busyness, per se, that Jesus takes issue with. I mean, sometimes it's right and okay to have a full schedule and a chaotic life. I have four children. I hope that's okay, right? But what he's going after here is not necessarily just the busyness. It's not the activity so much, but the system that it represents, The tables, the selling, the buying, they all support this system of a way to relating to God in an alternate kingdom than the one that Jesus came to establish. And it was a kingdom without spiritual health. There's a warning here for us, I think. Uh, 
And, the, and, it, and it's this, what makes Jesus angry? I mean, we don't see Jesus angry very often throughout the Gospels. What so angry that he's willing to go in and make a scene, flip tables, drive people out with a whip? Those with outward religion but no inward heart change, those whose um, lives are filled with maybe external busyness of religious activity but are not connected in a deep way to God and his kingdom and the fruits that naturally come from that, receive the harshest words and the harshest behavior from Jesus in the Bible. Those who love the acclaim and the attention of a virtuous life, a moral life, but are themselves not falling more and more in love with God and delight in what he's doing in the world every day. This system, this thing that Jesus is dismantling is actually a way to use religious activity and even Jesus himself to bring attention and fame and notoriety to ourselves. See, what the temple had come to represent was a kingdom based on moral performance, on on exchange, on um, a way of relating to God and others that puts the emphasis on what we can offer to God and what we can show others in terms of our moral life. It's a, it's a way of life that sets a, sets a standard for holy living, a kind of a bar, and our worth is tied up in whether we live up to that bar or not. So what Jesus' strange behavior is really telling us, what these tree cursings and table turnings are all about, is that the way of life that bases our meaning and our hope on that standard of performance is a way of life that's ultimately fruitless and ultimately doomed. It will not bring the life that we hope it will bring. Now, to extrapolate just a little bit, the bar or the standard that we may be trying to live up to might not, ha- might not be the same as these guys. It might not be the, the busy religious activity. It might not be the moral and external life. It could be all kinds of things. There could be a standard of what we think the good life is that could be financial or relational or kind of family success or a lifestyle sort of expectation. Honestly, we can set our bar for achievement anywhere we want. It could be fitness, it could be a balanced life, it could be sustainability, it could be a particular political affiliation, it could be kindness or friendliness or a certain life philosophy that we're committed to. The thing that holds all of these life plans, these sort of alternate kingdoms in common, isn't really the end goal, but the way we relate to our standard that we've set for ourselves. Because here's the thing, whether you, be ha- whether you happen to be losing the game or winning it on a particular day, Jesus says you're doomed either way. The whole game is rigged. Both winning and losing are enslaving. All right, what's a practical example of this? This is funny. I read an article or saw an article come across. Uh, someone posted this article, and it's from the New York Post, and the title is, I left New York so I could be, feel hotter, okay? Let me read to you from this article. I'll leave her name out. It's in the article, but just in, you know, in... in, in for the sake of kindness. So this this young gal, she's 32, she said, feeling attractive in New York was an impossible feat. The 32-year-old who grew up in Stewie Town and attended an all-girls private school says her self-esteem was slowly sapped by the city's sky-high beauty standards. All right? As a woman, you're never enough, says the sporty five-foot-six CEO. Okay, she has a few things going for her here. She's a CEO. I was never tall enough or slim enough 
it grates on you after a while, that pressure to be a walking mannequin. So what she does uh, soon after this, this, this gal who had been working on Wall Street um, moved to a new area where she says a flood of male attention quickly followed. All of a sudden, I was the belle of the ball. She was like, look at her. In New York, you, could, you couldn't find a nice guy anywhere, but where she came, uh, there were nice guys falling all over themselves to try to meet her. You know where she moved? Breckenridge, Colorado. <laughs> Okay, that's funny, right? <laughs> so to feel hotter, she left New York City and came to Breckenridge, came to a mountain town much like ours. Um, I just think that's hilarious. But, but the bar, see, here's the thing. The bar that she had set for herself that was going to give her life meaning and importance, that she was like banking on to create, to, to justify her existence, I mean, to give her meaning, was her attractiveness. And you're going to be driven to extreme lengths to stay above that bar. If you feel you're living below it, you feel the shame and the embarrassment of that, and maybe you have to move to find what you're looking for. But here's the thing. Even if you're living above the bar, we're all still living in fear, right? We're still living in fear that it won't always be true of us, that, we, that, things, will change, that things could change at any moment. And of course, this example is silly, But we all have some standard of performance that gives meaning to our lives, and we are either above it or we're below it every day. And um, this whole way of life, Jesus is saying, is lose-lose. It's driven by fear, fear of not living up, fear of being found out, exposed as a fraud, and fear that produces judgment towards others. See, one of the side effects of this whole way of life is that when we are, wherever we are in comparison to our bar, we can't not, we can't help but look down on those around us who don't live up to the same we do. So the temple had become a place where those who were wealthy and connected enough to remain clean on the outside could breeze in and out with a sense of superiority and achievement. They were moral. They were good. They were winning their game and they couldn't help but look down on those around them. It'd become a place where the poor were excluded, because when you live in a slum, it's really hard to get clean enough to go into the temple. It'd become a place where foreigners and outsiders were excluded, because they didn't have the same pedigree and resume required to live up to the religious bar. That sort of kingdom, Jesus is saying, is cursed from the start. Whether you're winning it or losing it, it will end up being withered, and fruitless. So there's a deep warning for us here. But there's also, I think, a great hope and a great promise in Jesus' behavior. Jesus reminds those standing in the temple court that day that his house, that when he walked into that temple, that was his house. He, he owned it. He made it. It was for him. And that it's a house of prayer for all the nations. See, the temple had always been the place throughout history where people connected with God. I mean, starting in the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle to the temple in the Old Testament, the temple was where people met God. But when Jesus starts to flip the tables that day, what he is announcing is he's also flipping this kingdom of achievement and performance on its head. He is telling us the action in actions that speak louder than words That the temple, the real temple, the true temple, the place where we can actually connect with God in a way that's life-giving, that will create fruit in our lives, 
has finally arrived. And that temple is not a place, it's a person. And that temple, through Jesus, it has inclusion. There is no, there is no thing that is going to keep people out, no, no uncleanliness, no foreignness, that it is a temple of prayer for all the nations. You see, he's saying that there's a whole new way of life that's not based on moral record or achievement, and it's not a life based on being the hottest person in a city, thank the Lord, right? And it's not a, a life that is based on um, being the kindest, being the richest, being the smartest, being the most moral. It's not a life that's based on anything that we can achieve. It's a life that is based on being connected to Jesus himself by grace through faith. See, Jesus in this passage invites everyone into the presence of God because he is the place where you can meet him. Jesus has come to establish a kingdom of freedom, a gift where we are secure as his people, not because we live above a bar or below it, but because we're in relationship with a king who has already lived the perfect life and just handed it to us as a gift. Free grace. It's through grace alone that we are with that king. See, Jesus, when he rolls into town on this Sunday in Jerusalem so many years ago, he is announcing through his behavior that speaks louder than words two things. He is a truly surprising king. He is a God-man king and our only avenue to salvation. And then he's announcing that he is bringing a kingdom that is built on grace and not achievement. It's a kingdom where you belong far long before you can obey. And it's a kingdom that's infused with love, and it's a kingdom built on grace, and this is the same kingdom that Jesus is building today. It's the same king that we're worshiping today. He says all that in riding a donkey, cursing a fig tree, and flipping some tables. I'm telling you, Jesus never gets boring. So let's pray, and let's thank him for these great gifts. Heavenly Father, What a fascinating passage. What a fascinating story. Thank you for the way that Jesus has come into our world to upturn, turn upside down all the ways that we think we need to gain meaning and significance. Thank you for the gift of your grace and your kingdom that includes us and your family. Help us look to our king in trust and delight and faith, knowing that he has done all things for us and that we can receive them as a gift from him. Jesus, open our hearts. Amen.